Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. This is the fifth show on our ICE series. In order to understand the ICE series, I urge you to listen to the first show of the series found online in the public archives of WERU.org. Uh, Wabanaki Windows, dated 2-28-23. Um, isolation, Control, and Elimination. This series is dedicated to the Wabanaki people in Maine to help them understand the history of Wabanaki state relations. It is my intention to read every word of the three transcripts and the, and the air and on the air and then discuss the implications. The 1942 transcripts reveal the dialogue between the Legislative Research Committee members and the witnesses they called before them to discuss the Indian problem and the final solution. This is why the series is titled ICE, Isolation, Control, and Elimination. Our guests today include uh, my, one of my co-authors of uh, One Nation Under Fraud, uh, a remonstrance, Judge Eric Menard, um, and uh, Professor Harold Prince. Uh, Eric Menard is Chief Judge of the Penobscot Nation Tribal Court, and Professor Harold Prince is a native of the Netherlands. He is a distinguished professor of anthropology and emeritus at the University of Kansas. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so, for having us. Sure. So uh, we begin by reading the third and final transcript. Today's transcript is the testimony of researcher and author of the 1942 Proctor Report. The reading begins with Mr. Donald Weber, who served as the attorney for the Joint Special Legislative Investigating Committee. He will read the entire transcript, uh, and we will read the entire transcript and discuss uh, on the other side, um, Harold. State House, Augusta, October 6, 1942. This is testimony of Ralph W. Proctor regarding, quote, Indians, end quote. Mr. Weber, as I stated to you, gentlemen, when you first arrived at this session, I employed Mr. Proctor somewhere around the last of July or the first of August. Mr. Proctor is principal of Edward Little High School in Auburn, and I felt with his training and background and the fact that as a schoolman, he was going to have some free time during the summer period, that he would be competent to make a research study of Indian affairs for this committee. He has done his work independently. I gave him the information that we had, which was very limited, and such information as I had as to where things might be found. But for the most part, he has had to go and find things himself, and he did so very capably. He has prepared, and the typewritten portion will probably co be completed about the end of this week, a fairly voluminous report, and I'm going to suggest that he tell you briefly how he did the work and where he went, and then discuss briefly the general topics which are covered in the report. And I think perhaps Mr. Proctor may now have some valuable opinions on the whole subject matter of Indians. In fact, I strongly suspect Mr. Proctor is today the leading authority on Indian affairs in the state of Maine. Chairman Down, he bears it very modestly. Mr. Ralph W. Proctor, Mr. Chairman and gentlemen, 
when Mr. Weber and I first talked about this, we made a somewhat tentative outline on the basis of the questions we were going to look up and report back to you. The questions were, what is an Indian? Do we owe the Indians any money? How many Indians are there? What is the condition of the Indians? What should we do for them? What are their citizenship rights and so forth? That started as our basis for it. And as if this thing began to work along and we began to get information and organize information, I finally ended up with a table of contents of 10 different items as follows. Introduction, treaty rights and obligations, the Penobscot Indian Fund, the Passamaquoddy Trust Fund, the Indian Appropriations, Indian Census, Legal Status of the Indians, Progress of the Indians, Summary, and Attached Documents. I've tried to divide that into two different sections. The report itself, with all its sections, is rather voluminous and in detail for such people as want to study it on that basis. But in the first part of the report, as it will be typewritten, I have tried to summarize those things just to give the high points and leaving out most of the detail so that anybody can read it over in 15 or 20 minutes and get some idea of what the story is. If you would like to have me go through that on that basis, I will do so, and then I will be glad to answer any questions or give you any opinions for what they might be worth. I understand these reports will be available within a week so that there will be a copy for each of you who want to take a copy and study it. One thing in starting in, I just turned to the back of the report, which gives a total of Indian appropriations since 1909 through 1942. In those years, 1909 through 1942, the state spent 985,000 odd on the Passamaquoddies and 1,043,000 odd on the Penobscots. In addition to a certain amounts of interest and in certain shore rentals that were received and spent out, and in addition, 80,000 of WPA spent on the Indian reservation since 1935. So you get over a period of years quite a total, and that total is somewhat less than it will be on the same basis for the next 30 years because our appropriations at the present time run in the neighborhood of 100,000 a year for the Indians. Now in brief, on the census of the Indians, the census last year gave exactly 1,200 Indians in both tribes, the Penobscots and Passamaquoddies combined. Of those, the first figures I had showed, there were about 60 in one tribe and 80 in the other who were living off the reservation. And I took those figures for accurate figures at the time. Later on, I found there was te a technicality there. In the Penobscots, those 80 living off the reservation were those living off the reservation and out of state. And there were about a hundred others who were living off the reservation, but within the state. So actually living on the Penobscot reservation as of June of this year, there were approximately 600, less about 180 others were not living on the reservation, living either off within the state or without the state. So that makes about a thousand Indians living on those two reservations for whom we are spending about $100,000 a year or about $1,000 a piece at the present time. Mr. Boucher, you mean $100 a piece? A thousand, $100,000, $1,000, $100,000 for a 1, thousand Indians. Mr. Boucher, 1,000 Indians at $100,000 is $100 a piece. Mr. Proctor. Thank you for the correction. I hope my report is better than my arithmetic.
Now, investigating the subject, we had a great many different sources. In order to do a good job on this and write a history of the Indians in Maine and the background, it would take six months or a year. So manifestly, I haven't tried to write any history of the Indians, but simply have picked out the important things, the legal status and the relations between the Indians and the state of Maine. Of course, we had to go to the Indian reservations and talk with the Indian agent and different departments, consult with the governor's council's records and the records of the Department of Health and Welfare. And of course, a great deal of work was done in the state library. So I think I have located most of the sources of material. There are two very interesting reports, one made by different committees of the legislature around 1850 and again around 1875 on whether the state of Maine had lived up to its treaty obligations with the Indians or not. And those reports are included in the complete report. Now, I do not think you will be interested particularly in a descent of the Indians, though that is included in here, but we will start with the administration of Indian affairs. Before 1830, Indian affairs were handled by committees appointed for the moment in consideration, committees of the Governor's Council. In 1830, an executive committee on Indian affairs was appointed. In 1839, a joint standing committee of the legislature on Indian affairs was appointed. And that joint standing committee existed from that time to the present, I believe. The Governor and Council had a legal charge of Indian affairs up to 1929 when the responsibility was shifted to the Forestry Department and remained there only three years until shifted to the Department of Health and Welfare in January of 1932. During all that time since 1830, when the Indian Affairs were administered by these different departments, one phase of Indian Affairs, that is the sale of their timber, has resided continuously within the land office and its successor, the Forestry Department. So the basis of the Indian funds from the sale of Indian townships and the sale of timber and grass rights, any investigation, whether the Indians received what is due to them from that source, carried us into the land office and the forestry department. With the exception of a few years through 1938, it was discovered that the acts of 1933 apparently turned this responsibility over to the health and welfare department. It remained in the Health and Welfare Department two years, and then they got special legislation to have it transferred back to the Forestry Department in 1938. So it is now back again in the Forestry Department with a lapse of two years during which it was handled by the Health and Welfare. Now under treaty rights and obligations, the government of the United States enters into the relations with the Maine Indians only under the Constitution of the United States, which gives Congress the right to regulate commerce with the Indian tribes, and by the treaty with Great Britain in 1794, which gives Indians the right to freely pass the boundary line and exempts them from duties on their personal effects, and also the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924. The federal government enters into these relations in, three, in these three ways, and I have written a letter to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs in Washington, which was included in this report, and I have just received a reply to, I'm sorry, I just received two days ago a reply. The question asked the Commissioner of Indian Affairs was to explain why the Maine Indians were not included with the other Indians that were taken over and are being administered by the federal government. His answer was that in the 13 original colonies, those colonies were left the power of handling their own Indians, or automatically took over that power without requesting the federal government. 
There's been one exception to that. South Carolina, I believe, took it to court and finally forced the federal government to take over the supervision and support of the Indians in that state. I believe that information was given to Senator Brewster in a letter which was written to him in 1934 by the Commissioner of Indian Affairs. There are other certain things which might be of interest to you also. Now, in regard to treaties with the Penobscots, there were treaties made by Massachusetts in 1796, the first treaty we find record of, by which the Penobscots gave up a 30-mile strip of land on both sides of the Penobscot River, reserving the islands in that river. There was another treaty made by Massachusetts in 1818, by which the Indians gave up all other lands except these islands and four townships. Massachusetts agreed to provide them with certain goods every year as long as they remained a nation. By the act of separation of Maine from Massachusetts in 1819, Maine agreed to take over all Massachusetts responsibilities towards the Indians, and I interpret that to mean both Indian tribes, and received $30,000 in a cash payment, which was made two years later, $30,000 compensation for taking over the responsibilities of the Indians. The Penobscots released the state of Massachusetts of any claims, and the state of Maine made a separate treaty with the Penobscots, but the state of Maine did not ever make a treaty with the Passamaquoddies, but apparently took over the obligation that the state of Massachusetts had with the Passamaquoddies without any special treaty with that tribe. After the separation, Maine authorized the Penobscots in 1824 to sell their islands. They didn't sell many of them them, but they were authorized in 1934 to do so. In 1830, the state authorized them to sell their two lower townships, which they did not do. They finally purchased all four townships from the, the Penobscots in 1833 for the sum of $50,000, and that $50,000 plus about $11,000, which was previously received from the sale of timber on these townships, is the basis of the Penobscot Indian Fund. I will go into more detail about that later if you wish. Also, in 1829, the Penobscots had been authorized to sell Smith Island and in 1831 to sell Pine Island. In 1835, the state sold three of the Penobscot Islands at auction for $7,550. The state just came in and put them up for auction for that money and put that money in the state treasury. The only treaty with the Passamaquoddy seems to be that of 1794 with Massachusetts. By that treaty, the Indians released title to all their lands and in return were ceded 15 islands in the St. Croix River, township number two in the first range, Luz Island, 100 acres on Nemcos Point, and 10 acres at Pleasant Point. But the Indians never did possess those islands. Those 15 islands in the river as it developed later, that they had all been granted by Massachusetts to a William Bingham in 1793. The Indians had to stand a loss of $2,486.17 to their trust fund from the court action of trespass against the Indian agent brought by a suit by a suit brought by Joseph Granger, who claimed these islands in 1855. On the other hand, they now have 100 acres, an increase of 90 acres, on Pleasant Point. The 15 islands had about 100 acres and were valued by the Indian agent in 1855 at $2,000. The Penobscot Indian Fund, I will give you the basis of that, 
$55,000 plus about $12,000 for the sale of timber. There were other receipts in 1843, which brought in $25,000 more. The state credited interest annually from 1832 to 1859 to a total of $91,278.20. During the same period, a total of $104,000 odd was paid from the fund, yearly interest plus some special appropriations, close paren, for the upkeep of the tribe. Beginning in 1860 and thereafter, interest was not credited to that fund, but that interest was appropriated and paid to the tribe, paid to the agent of the tribe every year. So starting in 1860, the amount that the tribe, the Indians had available for their support was interest on their trust fund that automatically went to the Indian agent every year. But there were other appropriations made by the state during the period from 1860. Special appropriations every year for education and for building churches and for this, that, and the other thing. There were no more drafts on this fund until 1909, when $1,500 was used for unpaid bills and the state made an addition in 1913 of $15,000 to that fund by an act of the legislature. That was for interest or errors in handling the, previous, the fund previous to 1860. The state paid that sum plus interest from 1860 to 1913, which made a total of over $15,000. Since January 1, 1913, the balance has remained on the books as $88,092.44. Of this fund, $26,234.74 is in impounded bank accounts. The auditor's department estimate the, estimate the realizable value of this principal at $3,323.70, leaving a probable loss to the fund of $22,911.04. The Passamaquoddy Fund originated in 1839 when the agent was authorized to sell timber and grass from the Indian Township. There were no receipts recorded in this fund until 1853. This is important at this point because the state at the time directed the land agent to sell timber, grass, and use of water power for a 15-year lease. The proceeds from that lease amounted to $22,500, and that was applied to their count. As the act read, the interest of which at 6% shall be forever appropriated to the benefit of the Passamaquoddy Indian. When that 15-year lease ran out in 1878, the legislature again provided for another 15-year lease, the proceeds of which, $5,225, were deposited in 1868. And when that expired, there was no further legislation providing for special leases. There had been previous legislation which stated that the interest from timber and so forth should be appropriated for the benefit of the Indian. It was only in those two 15-year lease acts that any mention of the Passamaquoddy Trust Fund or the setting up of a trust fund was made. So that gives us something that we will have to refer to again, because that fund is practically inactive at the present time. Even though additional income is being made, it cannot go into that fund. Although it did for a number of years without legislation, the same thing went into effect. Their interest was credited for only two years, and after 1860, it was appropriated every two years for the use of the Indians.
Here's an important point. In May 1938, the handling of the sale of timber and so forth was turned over by the Forestry Department to the Department of Health and Welfare, and it remained there until turned back again to the Forestry Department in 1941. During the years 1938 through 1939 and 1939 through 1940, the balances of $1,124.91 and $2,752.21, respectively, accrued and by precedent should have been turned into the Passamaquoddy Fund. And that money was turned into the general fund because a budget officer at the time ruled there was no authority for depositing that money in the Passamaquoddy Trust Fund because the only authority to do that had been under these acts covering the two 15-year leases. It had been deposited from 1833 to 1936 in that fund without any legislative authority, but on the basis of tradition. Finally, they caught it in 1938 and 1939, so the Indians did not get money for those two years, which came to them for the sale of timber that went into the general fund. By legislation in 1939, there was set up in 1941 an Indian Township Administration Fund into which this money from the sale of timber goes, and that is handled by the Department of Health and Welfare. Some money has been spent for improvements in Indian villages, and it is also provided in that legislation that if the balance in the fund ever reaches $10,000 or more, that the sum that a sum equal to the balance over $10,000 can be deposited in the Passamaquoddy Trust Fund. But in those two years where there was no legislation covering it, the Indians lost that $3,800. The state has the authority by law to lease or sell the whole or part of the Indian reservation at Princeton or the Indian Reservation at Perry and use said funds for the tribe. Now we go to Indian appropriations. I would like to circulate these graphs which show the Indian expenditures in red for the Penobscots and in blue for the Passamaquoddies, running up to 1942. I have another graph which shows the expenditures from 1909 to 1942 for each tribe. The Passamaquoddies in blue and the Penobscots in red. Here, uh, Mr. Proctor presented the graphs to the committee. From 1834 to 19, 1859, the Indians were provided for by specific appropriations of sums for schools, goods due by treaty, and such other assistance as the legislature chose to provide by annual resolutions. Starting in 1860, the interest on both funds was appropriated and additional appropriations were made for specific items. The Penobscots have another source of income from shore rental. Before 1873, the amounts received from this source were added to the sums available for Penobscot expenditures. By Act of 1873, a portion of the shore rentals were to be distributed among the members of the tribe as dividends. The practice now is to add these amounts to the general funds and pay a fixed dividend to both Penobscot and Passamaquoddy tribe. So the practice now is in handling appropriations that the interest from those trust funds every year reverts to the general fund. In 1936, that was changed and the interest from the Penobscot and the Passamaquoddy fund goes back to the, into the general funds and appropriation is made for the, the 50,000 or whatever it may be to cover all of the expenditures, which the department feels is the better method. Now the Indian census. I have some graphs here on the Indian census also. Here, Mr. Proctor presents graphs to the committee. 
It is rather peculiar that, about these graphs in that they are rather straight along certain parts of them. As a matter of fact, in some cases, they drop off. About 1900 and 1910, there was an actual decrease in the number of Indians. They increased from 1840 to 1860, then dropped back a little. The Penobscot tribe, way down here, and the Passamaquoddy tribe, down a bit, and remained stationary. But since 1932, they have gone up with a bang. Now, in 1822, the United States Indian Commissioner reported a total of 656 Indians, 277 Penobscots, 379 Passamaquoddies. This graph will show the fluctuations. There's another graph which shows combined population census of the Indian tribes compared to expenditures for Indian tribes. During the 10 year period from 1933 to 1942, during which the tribes have been under the supervision of the Department of Health and Welfare, the increase has been 18.3%. In 1933, there were 502 Penobscots and 512 Passamaquoddies or a total of 1,014. 1, in 1942, there were 584 Penobscots and 616 Passamaquoddies, or a total of 1,200, and an increase of 82 for the Penobscots and 104 for the Passamaquoddies, or a total of 186. I've just worked out in the last couple of days an age table which shows a number of people in each tribe at the different ages also on the deaths that have occurred over the last 10 year period. And I've tried to project it into the future as near as I could get. Here, Mr. Proctor indicates features of the graph off record to the committee. So you can see by that, that 19, and this says 1992, um, so that you can see that by in 1992, there will be a population of 3000. This is a large increase and in, this large increase is due in part to the better care of health which has been provided under the Department of Health and Welfare. There have been few adoptions into the tribe during this period. The increase is not accountable, accountable for by adoptions into the tribe. The Indians themselves wish to restrict the membership. In fact, the yearly census records show several cases of expulsion from the tribe following the amendment that persons adopted must be at least one quarter Indian blood. They found they had adopted people before not one quarter Indian blood, and they wanted to restrict their membership so each one would have more share in the benefits. And I think six or eight have been ejected from the tribe. Okay, thank you for, for reading all of that, um, Eric. Um, so I'm going to, uh, on this side of the reading, I'm gonna ask your thoughts on what Proctor has testified to so far. And I'm gonna ask uh, Harold to say something about that. Yeah, let's uh, start, which I often do. Uh, who are the actors? Uh, who are the people involved in this particular committee? And here we have, of course, um, Ralph Proctor, uh, who has been invited by the state senator, Donald Weber, soon to be appointed uh, the chief justice at the Androscoggin court. Um, but Weber is from Auburn, and it's not surprising that uh, he went to someone he knew, uh, and Proctor was uh, one of the people he see, he thought was capable of doing the kind of report uh, over a few weeks in the summer when uh, school people, as he says, have ample time 
because they're probably not paid. Auburn school teachers at the time were among the lowest paid in the state of Maine. Uh, he at that time is, of course, principal of the high school in Auburn uh, and will soon be the superintendent. So perhaps this um, gig that he had um, from Weber, his um, fellow Auburn man, uh, may have uh, not only helped him pay some bills, but also uh, helped him uh, politically. Uh, that said, Proctor was not a bad choice. Um, he had um, uh, he was from Cambridge, Massachusetts originally. He's not originally from Maine. Uh, had gone to Tufts College, where he majored in history and public law. Uh, so that alone would uh, give him some sort of background to be able to plow through the material that he was asked to do. He was a Phi Beta Kappa in the class of 21, uh, then first taught in Connecticut, and then in Wellesley, Massachusetts, and then he was appointed the, um, uh, to, um, to his position in Auburn. Um, so here's Weber inviting Proctor to give a presentation uh, based on the research that he was contracted to do. I do not know how much he was paid. I don't think it was a lot. Um, and given the time frame that Proctor had uh, and the fact that he had a bachelor's in, um, in um, history and public law, uh, would not have, of course, made him thoroughly familiar with the incredible complexities that he was asked to, uh, to deal with. That said, it's interesting when you look at um, uh, on this uh, fourth page, when he's beginning his um, uh, presentation to the committee, this is what he says, and I will read that again. Now, in investigating this subject, Proctor says to the committee, we had a great many different sources in order to do a good job on this and write a history of Indians in Maine and the background, it would take six months or a year. So uh, manifestly, I haven't tried to write any history of the Indians, but simply have picked out the important things, the legal status and the relations between the Indians and the state of Maine. Of course, we had to go to the Indian reservations and talk to the with the Indian agents and different departments, consult the governor's council records and the records of the Department of Health and Welfare. And, and of course, a great deal of work was done in the state library in Augusta. Now, it strikes me uh, of the sources that he consulted, none were Penobscot or Passamaquoddy tribal members. And that is striking because there were so many highly competent uh, Penobscot as well as Passamaquoddy who had experience as uh, representatives to the legislature in Augusta for many years. One of them is Leo Shea. We've mentioned him before. But um, also uh, the, the chief at the time, uh, James Lewis, was a former tribal representative, had been a uh, 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 chief before, had been a tribal representative, would soon be a, a chief again. And of course, Horace Polchies, who may have just left for Canada as he was uh, fighting in the Canadian army and would later be sent to Italy where he was wounded. But then we also have Florence Shea, who's mentioned later by Proctor, she was at Indian Island or perhaps at Lincolnville Beach um, uh, that summer, but easily reachable. Most people would have known where they would be. And then, uh, of course, Pauline Shea. Pauline Shea is, in my view, one of the unsung heroines in the history of the Penobscot Nation. Um, she really um, deserves a great deal more uh, attention than Bowdoin College recently did in an art exhibit where she celebrated as a basket maker. 
But this woman was college educated, extraordinarily well informed, and could have given Proctor an enormous insight in the maze of complexity that he tried to wade through and a, a segment of which we uh, basically were presented with. Uh, and then last but not least, two other authorities not consulted, one of whom was perhaps too far away, that would have been Frank Speck, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, who had just published in 1940 his uh, great ethnography that's still being consulted and was recently uh, republished by the University of Maine Press um, uh, with a new foreword. But then the really outstanding person who would have been easily accessible was in Brewer, and it was Fanny Hardy Eckstorm. So even if he had bypassed all the indigenous peoples, and I just mentioned a few of them, um, Fanny Hardy Eckstorm was thoroughly well uh, informed about uh, the history. He might have gotten a biased perspective, uh, but nevertheless, um, that's key. I have other things to say, but I don't want to continue at this moment. But that strikes out as number one, that he goes to the written record by the state of Maine, and that written record is only a partial reflection of what really happened, A. B, it's a biased reflection of what happened because it bypasses some of the key issues that he touches on but doesn't understand. And I don't blame him for not understanding it. It's an extraordinary complicated matter, as we all know, through the long litigation that led to the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act in 1980, and the current ongoing disputes that are going on in courtrooms um, uh, throughout the state and on the federal level. Eric? So a number of things come to mind with, with uh, Mr. Proctor's testimony. Um, the first thing that strikes me is as he gives his history of the treaties with the tribes and uh, what happened with the state of Maine, um, and it's something we've had conversations on before, is the fact that Maine incorporated treaty rights with the Penobscots into its constitution. What that means from my perspective is that everything that the state of Maine has done since that time that is at odds with the treaty rights that have been incorporated into the constitution unless they have been specifically approved by the federal government, are actually unconstitutional in the state of Maine. So for instance, if there are provisions of the Settlement Act, which run at odds with what the constitution of the state of Maine provides, then they are arguably unconstitutional within the state of Maine, because uh, in the state of Maine, the Maine's constitution takes primacy over uh, any legislative act of the uh, any legislative act. The other thing that strikes me is a recognition on page six of his testimony where he talks about the government of the United States enters, uh, and, and when he talks about treaty rights and obligations, the recognition of the primacy of the federal government in dealing with the tribes. He recognizes that the government of the United States enters into relations with the Maine Indians only under the constitution of the United States. That is that the United States government is primary with respect to uh, any of the treaty obligations. And what the United States government says is what's supposed to happen. That's particularly relevant when we're looking at what's going on today with Maine's position and the governor's recent veto of the sovereignty bill. 
because that elevates states' issues, and the governor has said that very clearly, that over that of the federal government. Interestingly here, he, he tries to, uh, I would say, wiggle away from it by saying, well, this is what the Indian commissioner has said, but note that in South Carolina, when the matter was taken to the court, the court ruled the federal government is responsible for the tribes and that's the relationship. It is a nation to nation relationship. As we start to work through the, the testimony, one of the things that strikes me, and I, it goes along with what Harold was talking about, about uh, the resources and utilizing the resources. Uh, I'm not an accountant, and, and I am struck by the numbers and the interplay of the numbers when it doesn't appear that there is any testimony or any attempt at a reconciliation for um, some of the underlying expenses that Mr. Proctor talks about. Um, he talks about things that were spent on the tribes that were expenditures, but he doesn't account where that where that money actually came from. And he doesn't account for what happened to certain expenditures or certain monies that came from, from the tribes funds, money that the state of Maine had a fiduciary obligation to provide to them. So you see on, oh, what is it? Um, page 13, where Proctor talks about, okay, there's a shore rentals that the Penobscots are supposed to receive. Um, and that's supposed to go into the uh, Penobscot funds, but they divert that into the general funds and then they decide that they're just gonna pay a fixed dividend to the Penobscot nation. Um, and then they decide that, no, that's not what they're going to do. They're going to uh, just divert it to the general funds and then they'll make some kind of payment, which I would argue is what they are obligated. So they're actually using Penobscot and Passamaquoddy money to pay the treaty, treaty obligations that they incurred in 1818 and 1819 when they agreed to provide that $50,000 worth of items. Um, the other thing that struck me as I looked at this is his statement on page 12 that the state has the authority by law to lease or sell the whole or part of the Indian reservation at Princeton or the Indian reservation at Perry and use said funds for the tribe. That runs absolutely counter to the Federal Non-Intercourse Act of 1796, which says you don't get to do anything with regards to Indian lands unless it's approved by the federal government. So saying the state has that power is a fallacy, uh, at least as far as federal Indian law is going, and, and recognized certainly at the time of the Proctor Report. But it's something that, as we've talked about in the past, Donna, we've seen over and over again that the state of Maine just runs roughshod over what federal Indian law has been um, and what the Supreme Court has ruled time and time again. Right. I agree. Um, 
Harold, you had more to say. Yeah. Um, well, and um, um, the judge just referred to it uh, several times, uh, although the doctrine itself was not mentioned. And that's the legal doctrine of preemption. And that's an important piece because the legal doctrine of preemption that is actually in the American uh, Constitution, Article 6, Paragraph 2, and that basically states that um, the uh, that allows a higher level of authority to regulate a specific issue under the supremacy clause of the United States Constitution that was ratified in 1788, whereby federal law takes precedence over state and local law. That's the key line, right? Because that's in the Constitution of the United States that takes precedence through that takes the right of preemption. And that is an important piece because the Commonwealth of Massachusetts had already claimed sovereign rights when it declared independence from the Great Britain. And so just to not make it too complicated, but there is a clause in the British law that was of the 1763 um, um, proclamation, a royal proclamation by the King of England that recognized Aboriginal title. And the key element here is Aboriginal title. So if that Aboriginal title, only the crown had the right to extinguish that title, no private ent enterprises, no businessmen, landowners, speculators could buy Indian land without the permission of the crown. So what now happened in the American Revolution, of course, this chaotic situation that happens between the Battle of Bunker Hill, 1775, when Chief Orono pledges the allegiance of the Penobscot and other Wabanaki nations to fight in the American Revolutionary War. So that's 1775. Then you get the Declaration of 1776, independence of the United States, that's recognized internationally in 1783. But then you have the big mess that goes on subsequently the next number of years, whereby each of the 13 former colonies that are now have declared independence, they haven't quite agreed on what that perfect union will be. And the, that union that leads to the drafting of the constitution, which was an incredible amount of um, uh, negotiation. Uh, I can't get into the details and part of which we have uh, covered before, but the key thing is to what degree the independent states at that moment, before they're really part of a new entity of the federal United States, what kind of rights do they re retain and what kind of rights do they give up to the federal government? And that tension between the federal government and the states is still with us today, right? That's an ongoing debate uh, that is fought out today in the presidential elections. How much power does the White House have? How much power does the Supreme Court have? And how much power does the Congress have? But also, what powers do the Indian nations have within the encapsulating uh, federal republic and those to, to be incorporated through conquest in the course of the 1790s onward, when uh, the famous uh, phenomenon of from shining sea to shining sea, where by one by one indigenous nations are rolled up. And who has the authority? So when with respect to South Carolina, you see a very interesting complicated issue that he doesn't get into and may not have understood, but that was the revolts by the Cherokee and the Chickasaw and other nations there when their lands were being invaded after gold was found, found that the great fear was on the part of the federal government, whereby the, um, the, the federal army, which was very poor 
was under the heading of uh, Henry Knox, the big landowner here in Maine, that they didn't have the resources to saber down a revolt or a war on the frontier of the United States again and again and again. And the provocations by Georgia and uh, Carolinas, provocations by uh, making inroads in Indian country would lead to, to a fierce series of Indian wars that the United States might not win. In fact, they were several times defeated. So it's an extraordinary messy situation that then leads to the Non-Intercourse Act that uh, Eric was just mentioning earlier of 1790, but that came as a result of that frontier trouble whereby really the, the power of the states to provoke wars on the frontier would lead then to blood and money on the part of the federal government that it didn't have, didn't have enough manpower, didn't have the resources to fight against united uh, indigenous nations on the frontiers, whereby all across uh, in the Ohio Valley was major, major problems. So the Non-Intercourse Act of 1790 was basically an attempt by the federal government to take away uh, any kind of potential dealings by states uh, and Indian nations. But Massachusetts already thought it already had done this kind of stuff by making these treaties in 1784 that wasn't signed by the Penobscot Nation, tried it again in 1786, all prior to 1790. And then finally, with the Penobscot succeed in 1796, and with the Passamaquoddy, that's a whole different ballgame where Proctor makes a real obvious mistake. That land was never given to uh, William Bingham. William Bingham was a fabulously wealthy banker in Philadelphia and a partner with Henry Knox in the so-called Penobscot Million that had been bought based as a land speculation, the so-called Penobscot Million, that included without any regard for Passamaquoddy uh, Aboriginal title, had he already been sold by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to generate money to pay off their war debt to the Dutch bankers in Amsterdam. So what you get here is what Donna said in an earlier uh, situation, it's about land, land, land. Then the laws are trying to accommodate these speculative games that are going on, all in search of revenue to pay off debts, to pay for expensive wars. But meanwhile, indigenous peoples are not represented. They were not represented really in the negotiations of these treaties, which is why Orono refused to sign the 1784 and 1786 treaties and finally was forced to in 1796. And the Passamaquoddy thing, I can't get into it, but such a messy situation out there that uh, anyone who later looks at these so-called treaties have to understand the archeology, span if you will, behind these treaties, because there's a whole universe hidden behind it. But primary among them is Henry Knox, in a double function as a land speculator in Maine on Indian lands, having huge debts to Dutch bankers who want proof evidence of title, which is the reason why they're worrying about title because they're, the people who lend them all that capital are not gonna guarantee that capital if they can't prove, prove that they own that land. Hence the final as an afterthought an extinguishing of Aboriginal title by treaty. And that's what you see in that kind of very weirdly written letter uh, regarding the, the Passamaquoddy Treaty of 1794, um, when they say that there was a misunderstanding. It was not a misunderstanding, it was simply first grab and later justify. And that seems to be ongoing in uh, all the subsequent negotiations. And so the mess that we now have today is a mess that was created in, you could say, 1775. Uh, if you really want to go on, because here was a promise made to Orono 
that led to the confusions upon confusions upon confusions, and then trying to railroad the indigenous nations into deals that nobody really understands, and Proctor clearly does not understand. He has gone through the morass of data, huge numbers of, uh, of figures. Um, to me, that's all peanuts, uh, the, the shore rents and the whole thing, because the underlying principles are being here uh, not understood, and Proctor really doesn't understand them. The state of Maine doesn't want to understand them because the consequences are enormous, as we have seen in the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act in, of 1980, when two thirds of the state of Maine were under a lawsuit, a lien, whereby none of these towns could raise the revenue through bonds, and it was cost them millions and millions and millions. We already have talked about it many times. So it's a messy situation that is perpetually with Band-Aid being taken care of, but the actual wound itself is never thoroughly healed. Eric? I, I agree entirely um, with, with what uh, Professor Princeton said, and I, and I would go a step further, and I argue that the concept, uh, not only did Maine choose not to understand, but Maine actively determined that it would not understand and follow federal law, that it wasn't a, a mere misunderstanding, but that it was an active decision. They knew what federal law, Worcester versus Georgia was very, very clear. Um, and that was in the 1830s and it came out and it said, Supreme Court ruled that, and Worcester versus Georgia was a case where a white missionary from Vermont came down, said that they were gonna preach on Cherokee land. Georgia says, no, we've got a law, no one, no, you can't go on Cherokee land and do anything unless we say you can. And the Supreme Court said, Georgia, you have no rights on Cherokee land. You do not make those decisions. And those rights reside, um, and it was part of the Marshall Trilogy. They did reside with the federal government. So if you look at the Non-Intercourse Act, you see that. You see that the federal government uh, and the Supreme Court has ruled that's right. Only the federal government can make those determinations. And yet we still see the state of Maine continuing to treat the tribes in Maine as if the state of Maine has authority over them. Um, I think clearly under federal Indian law, they did not and they continue not to. A quick comment about uh, the federal government in 1830. Um, yes, uh, but uh, the federal government was not a better big brother than Georgia. In many ways, it was worse uh, because we know what happened with the Indian Removal Act. With the Trail of Tears, yeah. Cherokee and, uh, and the Trail of Tears, right? So here we see that the federal government can also and is actively now loaded there in U.S. Congress that takes preeminence over uh, all the other uh, parties, but also Supreme Court. What we now see, sadly enough, is a collapse, if you will, in of the American democracy faith in its own institutions, because they're crooks all over the place. Not only are they crooks, but a stunningly ignorant people are being elected by stunningly in ignorant people. And that's a tragedy. That the total tragedy is a democracy cannot function if you don't have a well-educated public, but if you have a government that cuts, subs cuts subsidies to state institutions of higher learning where people don't learn anything anymore. And you see it all around us, that people are woefully ill-adequate uh, prepared for the international marketplace by high schools that don't do their job, can't do their job. Colleges don't do their job, can't do their jobs. 
And then you get people elected based on lies, half-truths, completely misunderstood realities, and insane stories are sold to the public as if it's a grand medicine show where nostrums are being peddled to the public in promises. And it's just out, outrageous. When I came to this country, I never could believe after working in Argentina, um, where I was during a military dictatorship, uh, I did field work there in 73 and later in, in uh, 1980 80, and 81, uh, during the end regime of the Videla, Videla regime, I came back to this country and I saw the American flag hanging over the Metropolitan Museum. And I said to my girlfriend at the time, I said, what a beautiful flag, I said. And I'm here a critical European. And I said, what a beautiful flag. And she was looked stunned at me and she said, what do you mean? I said, I've just been in South America in these banana republics where there's these military regimes and people are having no idea what goes on and their lives are being ruined. And I never would have realized that this country would have made this descent in the last, not just four years, five years, six years, over the last 20 years, it's been going downhill enormously and there's a crisis going on. So back to uh, uh, federal Indian law, there's a lot of injustice and broken treaties by the federal government with indigenous nations who had all kinds of treaties subsequent to the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy and they were played roughshod with and trampled and major genocidal wars have been waged on the Great Plains, as we all know, right, in the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s, with the last massacre at 1890, Wounded Knee, where women and children were being gunned down. There is no doubt that the federal government has not been ideal in its treatment of the indigenous populations, but the federal government and federal Indian law far, far exceeds what the states do locally um, and what we've seen, whether it be in Georgia um, or whether it be in Maine. We, the federal government has done much better with the relations, the opportunities that exist under federal Indian law, which is what the tribes in Maine really have been arguing for in this last bill that was up, is the opportunity to simply go, look, let all federal law apply to us like it does to other tribes. Um, is that ideal? No, but at least it's closer to a nation to nation status than what we see here in Maine, which is still no nation within a nation. The state of Maine's proper, fundamental proposition is the tribes are going to be treated like municipalities and we do not want a nation within a nation. And that is a abject refusal, continued refusal to recognize sovereignty. And, and I think that's particularly acute um, when you look at some of the recent decisions coming out of the Supreme Court, particularly by in McGirt and most recently in Brackeen, and you look to the, the speeches by the, the writings by Gorsuch, in which he recognizes the failure of the federal government. Um, you know, and Gorsuch in, in McGirt writes, at the far end of the Trail of Tears, there was a promise, and then goes on to write, today we hold the government to its promise. At least there's some steps. You know, I, and I, it comes to mind, and as I, I listen to you, uh, the Winston Churchill quote, which is democracy is the worst form of government, except for all others. It's messy. It's, it's difficult, but it does function. And, and I guess I come back to, and maybe I'm a, and I have been accused of this. I am a hopeless romantic. Um, it comes back to the Martin Luther King quote, Martin Luther King Jr. quote. And I believe he was quoting another person. I'm not sure who that 
the moral the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, but it's an arc. It's never a straight line, and and that's the challenge that that I think is we face not only as a nation um, as we deal with some of the things that have happened in history, but how do we move forward? We get about a minute, Harold. Yeah, I totally agree um, as an ideal, right? And without ideals and without, without romantic ideals, even uh, we would be nowhere, right? We would have a lot of reason to uh, jump into the abyss and, and commit collective suicide, right? Uh, so I totally agree with that. I also agree with the federal law that much has changed in the last 30, 40, 50 years uh, and much for the better. And ironically, you mentioned Gorsuch, some of the best stuff that came out for Indian country, paradoxically, comes from the Republicans. Some of the most, in many ways, uh, the antithesis of democratic ideals, uh, like Gorsuch, right? So here we have that we had before under Nixon, some of the best progress was made. Uh, so here we see these paradoxes that are all around. And that's probably the key idea that I think are uh, is ruling all of the, our discussions is the paradoxes, paradoxes, paradoxes. Okay, so thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Laurie, and you've been listening to Webinacki Windows. I wanna thank Judge Eric Menert, Professor Harold Prince for, for being on our show today. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. <laughs>